I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. My God, what is this? cried Francis I, a bewildered king of France. Or, well, at least that's what's come down to us. I'm always a little suspicious of battlefield quotes. I tend to wonder who heard him, how did they hear him over the din of battle, and when did they write that down? But if it is what the desperately shocked monarch screamed outside the city of Pavia in 1525 as his army died around him, it would make sense. Francis's feudal outlook on the world was rooted in a system 500 or more years old. For most of that time, the idea that it would or could change would have been ridiculous, would have even been blasphemy. To put it another way, though, the way I like to think of it is, had Charlemagne, the French king, the great French king, had he been plopped down onto the throne of France in 1400 and given a week or two to get caught up on the things that had gone on between when he was alive and in power and 1400, I tend to think that he does fairly well. I don't think the world looks particularly different to him. I would even wager that he probably picks up where he left off, and within a few years, he's got most of Europe under his control. However, that being said... I am not so sure he has a clue what's going on a mere hundred years later in 1500. Let's say that the Renaissance went from 1400 to 1600, and obviously that that can be debated. But just for the sake of discussion, let's uh, just put it at that specific 200-year span. In the 1400s, the Black Plague savages Europe on a horrific scale. It's a traumatic psychological experience for all of Europe, and it's left us in terror of unseen killers to this very day. I mean, today, in 2020, uh, I think the world is, is looking at you, coronavirus. So the Black Death was terrible, but not exactly a new experience. The Antonine Plague may have been just as bad, if not worse. And there were hundreds of outbreaks of different diseases between the two, and before, and after. Uh, In the 1400s, there was also the rise of the Italian kingdoms and duchies, with all their attendant wealth and art and power. But, again, that's kind of old hat for Europe. The Greek city-states of the ancient world would have rolled out a a Pericles for every Lorenzo Medici, uh, a Plato for every Da Vinci, and Athens for every Venice. The uh, printing press was new to Europe, but not the world. China, as usual, was printing for hundreds of years, and ancient Rome was a highly literate society. Then you have the much-debated and argued over today, the uh, discovery-ish of the New World. This one is where I think things start to shift a little bit for a guy like Charlemagne. Uh, This is where... Uh, He might not feel as secure. He might be on shaky ground. 
but it's still a thing that can be understood. He could grasp it. Colonies have always existed, and the Far East was known about to Alexander and in his time, even if it seemed impossible to reach. So thinking of the New World as that kind of a distant but comprehensible thing isn't that far-fetched. The uh, Reformation and Martin Luther are another series of events that would be tough for Charlemagne to really fully understand, but religion splinter and evolve, and, and who knows, maybe Charlemagne was would even be a Protestant. Um, so for me, the real difference maker in the, the Renaissance world and, and the real step towards the modern world is the military revolution of the time period. And it's the, the, the key aspect of that is the uh, world-moving, earth-shattering, just society-crumbling shift that came about with the advent of the gun. Again, China was screwing around with sulfur, charcoal, and saltpeter hundreds of years before the Europeans knew it was a thing. The Chinese even saw the military applications using it for grenades, bomb-like devices, flashbangs, and and early vase-shaped cannon. They just never really got around to perfecting the whole gun thing. In Europe, though, you had tinkerers and alchemists experimenting with the recipe for gunpowder as soon as it came over. Uh, Different types of delivery methods were played out, and shapes and sizes of projectiles were constantly being fooled around with. Uh, The hand cannons that evolved were really no more than basically a metal tube on a stick, but... With, uh, you know, with a desire to experiment and, and seek out better design, uh, the arquebus eventually evolved, and that would become the matchlock, and eventually that would turn into the rifle, and uh, so you end up with what we have for guns today based on these really rough-cut versions called arquebuses that were able to fire a lead ball through plate mail, and that's going to be important, so remember that. The age of gunpowder was fully at hand, a military revolution was underway, and Europe was never going to be the same. And, and this is where I think things get truly interesting, and, and why Francis I's indignant exclamation, his absolute confusion, makes a lot of sense to me. It would seem to me that if we apply his question, what is this, not to his um, immediate situation or or the action happening in his vicinity it's it's i think if we apply it to his timeline it it really hits the core of it if francis's cry is aimed more at the rapidly changing world around him things kind of fall into place a little bit this was a man of course who was singled out by god himself to rule according to him and the pope but Uh, His job, his birthright, was to reign supreme amongst all of his countrymen and count maybe a half dozen other people that walked the earth as possible equals. Uh, For the entirety of his lifespan, Francis I would command his country, own anything he wanted, and bow to no man, except maybe the Pope, he'd do a brief dip every now and then, But really, in a time when everybody was ruled by somebody, 
Francis is one of the very few human beings walking the earth that can say he is not be he's not beholding to anybody. Of course, by the time Francis gained the crown, things had even changed more than they had in the 1400s. Uh, the realities of the battlefield had started to shift. No longer were uh, kings and nobles safe in their, their armor enclosures, uh, you know, no matter what divine entity had selected them to be uh, prosper, prosperous and powerful and rule, they, they were vulnerable for the very first time. And kings in particular, uh, they might have this kind of um, sense that they, you know, if they were going to die in battle, it would come in a majestic kind of uh, single combat or a glorious final charge of the cavalry, but not anymore. Now with the advent of the gun, uh, by the time of Francis I, Valois, king of France, a king could be killed just like any other ordinary man. And even more concerning and uh, befuddling and probably outrageous to men like Charlemagne and Francis, kings could now be killed by not just any other men, but by any ordinary men. Because now in Europe... We did spend time perfecting the whole gun thing, and then we just kept on tweaking it and tweaking it and perfecting it and tweaking it. So, this week, let's go back to northern Italy and a power struggle between king and emperor. Let's go back to the enclosed hunting ground of Visconti Park with its castle-like lodge, wide-open fields, boggy canals, and wooded thickets. Let's go back to a time when Swiss mercenaries were just as likely to win you a battle as they were to walk away, all depending on the pay. When the German Landsknecht fought like lions at Carnival, ferocious but decked out in outrageously colorful garb. Where a military revolution was well underway, one that combined modern weapons with old ways. Let's go back to a place where a king was captured and the common man became a threat to everything and everyone. Let's go back to February 24th, 1525, and the Battle of Pavia. Louis Twelfth of France inherited an obsession for the prosperous kingdoms and territories of northern Italy. It was an obsession that would consume his reign and one he would ultimately pass on to his heir, Francis I. Louis was particularly infatuated with the wealthy, powerful commercial hub of Milan. Situated at the top of the peninsula in Lombardy, where the uh, boot meets Europe, Milan was within striking distance of France. But if Louis was hell-bent on ruling the Italian city, another monarch was hell-bent on ruling the world. The Spanish king, Charles VIII, was rapidly becoming the most powerful man in all of Europe. The discovery of the New World and other colonies set Spain apart from the other kingdoms and would eventually make her fabulously wealthy. All Charles needed to do was keep the other players from gaining too much power before the silver and gold started pouring in from the New World into his coffers. This back-and-forth chaos of Italian politics and warfare was just the right kind of diversion to keep his rivals focused on the wrong thing. 
Like a magician, he hoped to distract them. He hoped that the enemy would see what he wanted them to see, not what he was actually doing. Louis of France obliged, and the ensuing struggle is known as the Italian Wars. Decades of fighting that saw a constant seesaw struggle, one side gaining power because of the genius captain in the field, the other side achieving success through a technological development or, or some modern tactical technique. If you think about it this way, uh, imagine two boxers. They're both heavyweights. Each man is a uh, six foot five, 250 pound bruiser. Uh, they're both great punchers, just pure punchers, and they're, they're really sound defensively. So neither one's going to sneak in anything and, and get by the other guy's guard. Really, neither fighter has an edge. Think of it that way. But as the fight goes on, one guy gets a, a new trainer in the middle of the fight, and that trainer notices a weakness. For three rounds, the fighter with the new trainer just pounds away at his opponent and just constantly hits on that weak point. Now, in the fifth round, it looks like the guy that is going to go down is the one who's been just getting his weak spot hit by the, the, the fighter with the new trainer. But the referee stops the fight in the middle of the fifth round. The ref declares, we're going to use MMA rules now. So the fighter that was just losing figures out really quickly how to, to use grappling technique. Now, he uses an excellent grappling technique to bring that opponent that was formerly winning, the guy with the new trainer, he gets that guy on the ground, and now who, the guy who was minutes ago was, was the clear powerhouse winner is now on the ground and losing. And then, well, I won't belabor it anymore, but you get the idea. The Italian wars were really, really back and forth and just kind of, uh, it was always one guy on top and then the next guy and then the next guy, and then everybody traded spots all the time. At the Battle of Ravenna in 1512, the French army won a huge battle against Spain and the Papal States, gaining control of Milan. It was a, a tentative kind of victory, though. And in 1513, only a year later, at the Battle of Navarra, France lost the power over Lombardy and its prized city. In the aftermath, France was seen as a weakling, and all the other vulture countries showed up and wanted to pick away at the corpse. The Holy Roman Empire, Switzerland, England, all of these countries joined in a war against Louis with Spain. So wheeling and dealing, Louis is able to meet with each enemy and kind of broker a bunch of separate pieces, which actually tells you more about how suspicious those other countries were of their own allies than it really tells you about France, but that's a different story. Uh, it, was, it was Louis' last act to secure peace with all these different various countries, and in, in 1515, Louis XII dies and his heir, Francis I, claims the throne. He almost immediately declares Milan as a French possession and goes about taking the city, starting the whole Italian war cycle over. So the way he actually took the city of Milan is, is pretty clever, I think. Um, so Francis bribed the garrison. There was a Swiss garrison in the city holding it, and he bribes that garrison. The way he does it is he goes to them and he says, I will give you, I will give you all of the silver in my camp. Well, the Swiss garrison accepts, or at least half of it does. They walk out of the city and take all the silver that Francis offered, and the other half that didn't just was sent packing, um, which is smart on Francis's part because they are mercenaries, so 
at some point he might need to go to those guys, even though they didn't take his bribe and, and hire them. So instead of killing them or harming them or anything, he lets them walk right out. Uh, so in short order, Francis had control of Milan, the city that he desired most. And soon after, in a real drop-down, drag-out kind of battle at Marignano, France defeated another Swiss army, further solidifying French control over the region. He didn't know it at the time, but in 1515, when he secured Milan through to 1519, these would be the high point of Francis's reign in Italy. In 1519, Maximilian I, the Holy Roman Emperor, died. Now, because this was a title that was bestowed by vote, I will not get into the whole, uh, you know, the bizarre world of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, that's for another show, maybe another whole podcast. But let's just suffice it to say that a bunch of small principalities and kingdoms and duchies all get together and they vote who they want to be the Holy Roman Emperor. And that's how you get that. It's not really gained by lineage like, it, you know, the King of France or Spain or, or England. Um, so there are a bunch of different claimants on the Holy Roman Emperor position. Two of the clear leaders, though, of the pack were, were Francis I, Valois of France, and the fresh-faced 19-year-old new king of Spain, Charles V. Now, at this time, the Pope is also always around. Always imagine the Vatican playing a part in all of this medieval Renaissance uh, goings-on. And the Pope at this point is playing his little game in the shadows where he's pitting the great powers against each other. And as a result, because he wanted it this way, the young king of Spain, Charles, now is crowned the Holy Roman Emperor. So now Francis Valois has a really tough situation in front of him. Uh, what Basically what he ends up with is he has... The king of Spain and the Holy Roman Emperor are the same guy. So on his western southern border, he's got his biggest rival, Spain. And on his eastern border, he's got the Holy Roman Empire. Both of those are controlled by the same guy. So he's in the, he's basically sandwiched in between uh, two giant enemies. So... I, Francis, I'm assuming, I don't know, but I'm sure that this was pretty, uh, this made him feel like he had been done dirty, uh, that he it probably rubbed him pretty darn raw. And now, not only was his country in danger, but that city that he loved, Milan, the one he had been wheeling and dealing to take earlier, was now within striking distance of the Holy Roman Empire and his enemy, the King of Spain. And, and back at that Battle of Marignano that we just talked about, where uh, Francis secures the northern Italian region, um, Francis won Milan, he wins this battle, and in a strange set of circumstances, he also kind of loses it in the long term. Because a big reason for the victory of that battle was uh, one of his generals, the Duke of Bourbon. Uh, and Bourbon thought he, or Bourbon, I'm going to give it that French twist and say Bourbon or Bourbon. But uh, 
but bourbon is how I see it. Um, so Bourbon thought he had a deserved, uh, that he deserved some real lavish rewards and some praise for his role in this giant French victory at, at Marignano. And instead, Francis kind of overlooks him and on getting shafted here, uh, Bourbon rebels and he flees to uh, the French rival Spain and he goes to Charles V, young 19-year-old Charles V, and he directly appeals to the Spanish king for aid. Uh, and never one to really miss a trick here, Charles uh, agrees to back Bourbon for the throne and help him win it. Bourbon was given a, a bunch of troops and an army and some money, and he was sent over to Italy to campaign in that region. Francis loses Milan at the Battle of Bicocca in 1522. Uh, in an attempt to regain the city, Francis sent his most trusted advisor, the Admiral of France, Guillaume Bonivet, into Lombardy. Bonivet marched with an army of 36,000 men. That's half of those were French, half were Swiss mercenaries. And thinking that the enemy in Milan had an equal number, the which is, is actually wrong, the French really outnumbered them two to one, Bonivet goes into winter camp. So instead of taking the city and defeating the army that he outnumbers almost two to one, he just hangs out outside the city in winter camp. In 1524, there was a growing threat to Bonivet's army in this camp from both Bourbon and another imperial army under the Viceroy of Naples, Charles Delanoy. Uh, Bourbon brought a huge number of the vaunted German Landsknechts into, uh, into this imperial army of his. Uh, added to these Landsknechts were Lenoy's army and uh, some Venetian forces. So Bonnevay got uh, pretty antsy, and as he's watching this giant imperial army start to build itself, and it's got German Landsknechts in their colorful garb, and it's got uh, more, more and more Spaniards and more and more uh, Nepalese and Venetian forces, Bonnevay is getting a little nervous, a little, uh, a little antsy, and so he withdraws towards the French. Border, kind of vacates the Lombardy Milan area and heads towards um, southeastern France. Things really unravel quickly for Bonnivet and his army, though. At one point, 13,000 Swiss. Basically just because, again, these guys are mercenaries, so you got to pay them. And, and they weren't paying these uh, Swiss mercenaries, so 13,000 of them just walk away. They just walk away. Then at the River Sessia, an injured Bonivet is forced to allow two of his uh, lieutenants kind of run the river crossing because he's too injured to take control. And as they're trying to attempt this crossing here, the Spanish arquebusers catch up and just shoot the Swiss rearguard to pieces, and it's, it almost ceases to exist. The retreating French pikemen and cavalry are just mauled. They can't come to grips with the uh, Spanish arquebusters because they're mounting, uh, they basically mounted horses, get up to the uh, firing line, get off a few rounds, and then back onto the horses and, and run away. The French, as they're trying to cross this river, can't quite deal with both things at once. So it just, it totally withers the army, um, and Bonivet's army is... It crosses, but it's in shambles. Uh, unable to really do anything about it, they they finally drag themselves across the French border, but they are a, a 
shadow of the army that was recently in camp just outside the city of Milan. Bourbon could, at this point, he could smell the French throne. He's looking at it like, I've got them on the run. I know Francis is going to, he's going to cave. I can just, basically, from here on out, I can just run right through Provence, the southern part of France. And so Bourbon goes to Charles, the king of Spain, and says, please give me permission. He does. Bourbon invades France. But it turns out that 10,000 Spanish soldiers, uh, a bunch of lansquenacs, and a couple of dozen cannon are not enough to take the French throne. At the port city of Marseille, uh, Bourbon is kind of stymied, his, his offensive is um, halted, and after a couple of failed assaults, Bourbon is just stuck besieging the city of Marseille. All of a sudden, Francis and his friend Bonivet arrive in the city of Avignon, right behind where Bourbon's position is. It's, uh, it's not far from Marseille. So Bourbon is now in a really sticky situation. He's got, uh, he's got a huge enemy army uh, right in his rear, capable of isolating him from his, uh, his home position and his, his uh, lines of communication are endangered. Uh, so he doesn't want to get stuck in France and isolated. So he beats a hasty retreat. He's really got to haul ass and get out of France. And along the way, in order to speed up that transition, he he sheds his cannons. The, the cannon are really large. They're heavy. They're extremely difficult to move quickly uh, around mountains or up and down mountains and over rivers and all that. So instead of dealing with it, he says, to the hell with the cannon. We'll just throw them down ravines or off cliffs and be done with those and and the fear was so high in the imperial army as it's retreating out of france that the pikemen are tossing their their armor and their weapons to the side of the road so that they can walk or run a little bit quicker once they get back safely into italy though bourbon was kind of left to lick his wounds the french didn't pursue any further and instead they seemed to let up what actually was happening though is that the french only wanted to frighten him away or frighten Bourbon away from the Provence area. For the French king, Milan was always on the mind. After seeing Bourbon off his land, Francis swung north and prepared to invade the Duchy of Milan again. This time, though, he had a horde of happy and confident Frenchmen, and he'd even put out feelers to the Swiss cantons to get more pikemen to meet him in Italy. Splitting his army for the campaign, both to make it a little bit more difficult to pin him down and also make it more, uh, it, make it easier for his army to eat while on campaign, Francis began his attack. In three columns, the right column with 5,000 Lance Connect and Italian Light Cavalry, the center with 7,000 mixed French infantry, and the left column with 10,000 heavy cavalry, archers, and Francis himself the French army crossed the Alps and headed for Milan. Francis was in the city of Turin when he got his response from the Swiss cantons. It came in the form of 14,000 mercenaries. With his three columns advancing through northern Italy, Francis now had 24,000 men, and he was trying to pin down and destroy a much smaller force uh, of imperial infantry and cavalry under Bourbon and the Lansnecks with uh, Lenoy. And there was also a third imperial smaller army under a general named Pescara, who was extremely talented and who will play a role in this battle later on. 
because Francis's army was split up, coordinating and communicating became very difficult, and it actually allowed the imperial forces to remain just out of reach. Uh, they stayed just one step ahead uh, and were able to stay out of the grasp of Fran uh, France's army. On October 22nd, Francis was only a day's march from Milan. He and Lenoy, the leader of the Imperial forces, sent out scouting columns against each other just to get an idea of what the other guy was doing or planning. Lenoy didn't want to give up on Milan, but the combination of a, a larger French army and a recent outbreak of plague in the city's population really convinced him that it wasn't worth trying to hold on to the city right now, so he moved his Imperial army to the city of Lodi, or Lodi. He conceded Milan, but he sent a garrison south towards the city of Pavia, just in case he was going to be able to get back there soon enough where it might be important for him to still have a force in the area. This, ja this uh, garrison that he sent was to keep Pavia in case of future operations, essentially. The garrison was under a general named Antonio de la Via, Duke of Terranova, and they got to Pavia with Francis hot on their heels. Leaving a holding force of just 4,000 men in the city of Milan, the French king brought his whole army to Pavia, arriving on October 28th. And now he had a choice in front of him. Uh, Francis, it, he wasn't a terrible king. In many ways, he was actually a fairly good ruler. Uh, he was a fairly good leader. He could have really, I mean, he could have just done whatever he wanted. He was king. But he actually took the advice and input of his advisors seriously, and he really considered what they said. So recognizing that he was maybe uh, in the, on the horns of a dilemma here, he gets his advisors together and calls a council of war. In it, there are two sides, two opinions. The majority of the veteran commanders wanted to follow Lenoy and the main imperial army that headed for the city of Lodi. They recognized the threat that the enemy commander possessed. He was very, Lenoy is a very talented guy. They know that, so they want to try and squash him as quick as possible. Uh, if he's left in the field of battle, if he's left to operate on his own, he's probably going to cause trouble. So they... they they have him outnumbered, and he's on the run. They want to take a, a, a swipe at him and finish him off now. Of course, there is the possibility, if they do that, that the garrison in the city of Pavia might uh, do some harm to the French rear. Uh, they might, in fact, retake the city of Milan from that 4,000-man French garrison. But still... It seems like both of those are minor compared to taking out the entire Imperial Army. The main point, though, was just the goal would have been to end the war by coming to grips with Lenoy and crushing him in the field. The other option, the other idea, was to consolidate the current position, root out the Pavian garrison, and secure Milan. Bonivet... Francis's good friend convinces the king that the second option was the better one, even if it was less, less exciting and sexy. So the French army, instead of going for the, the, the kill shot on Lenoy, head to Pavia for a siege. What the French didn't know was that Lenoy at Lodi had not had time to prepare defensive positions, and his army was pretty disheartened by the fact that they were retreating 
and it was in general disarray. So, had the French charged hard after him, it's likely that the imperial army would have been destroyed with relative ease. But Francis chose Pavia and found himself a pretty tough nut to crack. The man in control of Pavia's defenses, De La Via, was a crusty old war dog who knew his business and he knew it well. He would use every trick in the book to maximize the already strong city defenses. The walls of Pavia were thick, tall, and secure as hell. The coming contest would be a race to see which was more potent and which would break first, the city or the French army. When Francis arrived outside Pavia, he set up his siege positions. At all four sides of the compass, he placed a detachment of men. To the east, he had men in the area of the, uh, basically what was like a little hamlet called the Five Abbeys. In the west of Pavia, Francis sent men to hold another small hamlet called the town of San Lenfranco. South of the city and the river Ticino was a smaller force meant to hold the hamlet of Borgo Ticino on the far bank of the river away from the city and they were basically just making sure that nothing went in or out of the town from that side. And then the main body of the French army was camped out directly north of the city in the in a kite-shaped hunting ground park that was totally fenced in or walled in called Visconti Park. Again, it's shaped like a, a kite. This uh, Visconti Park was... The, it was five square miles of fully enclosed hunting grounds. And if you look, if you think of it as a kite, again, the city of Pavia is at the tail end or the, the pointed tip of that kite. The wall was, was not a picket fence by any means. It was about 15 feet high. It was fully enclosed. It was solidly made, a lot tougher to bust open than it looked. There were uh, randomly interspersed gates all over, and these weren't just like uh, sliding doors. These were actually defensible, uh, ready to rock and roll and defend the area gates. Within the the park uh, walls, there were some woods, there was some wide open flat ground. There was plenty of room for an army or soon to be armies uh, maneuvering in that in the within the walls of the park, but the earth itself wasn't really ideal for maneuver or cavalry. It was it was wet, it was damp, it was boggy. Lots of low areas were all over the place, and this was even made worse by a lot of irrigation ditches and a couple of small canals, and then some a, a small stream that ran right through the park. So some places would be very dangerous for cavalry to maneuver and and men might even have a hard time. Francis, however, made his headquarters within the camp walls at the the hunting lodge or the home of the park warden, and this place was called Mirabello Castle. This was a really uh, a large, sprawling house or home. Not, Not exactly a castle, but it did have a drawbridge and it did have a moat, so it was known as Mirabello Castle. On Halloween, October 31st, the French artillery rolls into camp. Francis has his cannon split into two different batteries, and he places one in the east and one on the western sides of the city, and the French army takes up its positions all around Pavia, and the batteries are set up, 
and starts shooting at the uh, the walls, trying to create uh, breaches in these these strong city walls. De La Vea, or De Leva, the captain of the garrison, he's not just sitting there idly as the French start attacking his city. Within the walls, he has 9,000 men ready to hold out for quite some time. Pavia is well-stocked with food and ammunition, um, and it has its own number, a uh, good number of artillery pieces that they can fire back at their enemy with. The only two things that De Leva is lacking are gunpowder and money. Uh, the the gunpowder situation, the gunpowder stores, he thinks will hold out for a while, but the really crucial thing that he's missing right now uh, at the beginning of the siege is he's really in need of funds. He's desperate to to get more money because he has to pay uh, his army. His army is made up of Landsknechts, and again, these are German mercenaries. They're excellent fighters, really, really great pikemen, and really good against heavy cavalry, but they have uh, no real emotional attached to the cause of the fight. So if they don't get paid regularly and in the agreed amounts, they're just as likely to, to walk out the front gate as they would be to, to turn the keys of the city over to the French or the enemy. Uh, so getting creative, De Leva has the city's church ornamentation and plates and chalices and cups. He has it all melted down so that he can pay his men for a little while at least. Uh, as November wears on, the rain keeps coming down, and it's a very ra- rainy time of year for this area. What's happening now is in the rain, the gunpowder at the time was fairly unstable or, or it was it was not wasn't really good in in wet weather. So if it gets damp or or wet, it doesn't work. So instead of risking the gunpowder, both sides kind of go quiet in the rain. Then as drier weather arrived, the French bombardment of Pavia begins again. Hundreds of shots strike the city walls over and over and over. And even with these early cannons, there's a surprising amount of accuracy that can be achieved. So Eventually, the, the continuous pounding punched a, a hole, a couple of breaches into the city walls. Uh, Francis leads an assault on one and orders an assault on the other. Both of these attacks failed. As the French fought, they were, uh, fought their way through the breaches, they found that the defenders had thrown up inner ramparts and dug ditches on the inside. All these kind of obstacles, plus all the, the debris from the wall itself, creates a, a buffer for the assaults. The secondary walls kill the French momentum, and are easy, these assaults end up being fairly easily fended off by uh, the defenders. Francis calls another council of war to try and figure out what the next step of the siege should be. After his beating in the breaches, Francis is told by his commanders, go home. You have to go home. Uh, We don't want you to continue to to suffer defeats. We want your reputation as a military king to remain intact because it helps us when we're dealing with other countries. Other countries fear us if they fear you. Uh, so please go home, keep your reputation. Francis, though, is he's of the old guard. Like he he thinks he should be in the fight. He's got to be at the front. He's he's he actually is a fighter. He's a good fighter. So he wants to uh, see this thing through, and he thinks that 
it wouldn't be it would be cowardly to tuck tail and run. So instead, he says, uh, you know, no to the counselor's advice. He's going to stay. He's going to see this thing through. The winter comes in with December, uh, brings more wet weather and more stagnation. The French cannons just they can't fight. They can't fire with this damp powder, so they remain silent. As the siege settled into a period of watchful pause, though, that doesn't mean everything's done. The Pope in Rome, again, doing his thing, meddling, uh, Pope Clement decides that he wants the Vatican to regain the power that it used to have at the height of the mid- medieval period. Uh, he could, At this point, the European crowns realize that they have more power than the Pope, so they start drifting away a little bit from the Church, and, and he wants to reverse that trend. So... To keep uh, keep any single crown from having too much power, the Vatican's always playing nations off of each other. The Italian wars are, are just a continuous uh, reminder of that. So during the siege of Pavia, the Pope paid Charles of Spain 6,000 ducats for him to go out and buy more mercenaries to fight the French. At the same time that he's doing that, he enters into a secret agreement with Francis, the king of the French, what he agrees to is that uh, the Pope will support Francis's claim to Milan all throughout Italy if, in return, Francis will send some military support down to Naples to take the Naples or the Kingdom of Naples for the Papal States. Clement assumes that a rational person would wait until after their current military situation is settled before he starts a new venture all the way on the other side of a country. But what Francis doesn't, or what Clement doesn't realize, is that Francis is not super bright right now. He's not thinking clearly. And instead of waiting, he sends about 6,000 men south to perform the Holy See's new quest. It's an idiotic decision. In the middle of winter, the men he sent only make it a couple of days' march from Pavia. Then, because of the fact that half the army is French, half of it is Swiss, there's some kind of inevitable dispute. A fight breaks out between the French and the Swiss, and the Swiss just decide the whole thing's not worth the effort. Several thousand of them just pull up stakes and go home. So now this tiny little army that was already small is now a fraction of its former size. It basically makes it to the river river Tiber and just peters out and calls off the whole expedition, uh, turns around and goes home. Francis had significantly depleted his main army to accomplish a non-urgent task hundreds of miles away while also trying to starve one enemy city and keep another enemy at bay. Totally idiotic. Which is weird, because, again, Francis isn't a terrible king. He's not, he's not bad at doing his job. It's just this one decision seems to be uh, just a real red flag. I don't know what he was thinking there. Uh, as Francis was sending thousands of his men off on a wild goose chase, though, his enemy, Lenoy in Lodi, was bolstering his own army. From Vienna, Charles's little brother sends 15,000 more Lansknechts, some of those paid for by the Pope, along with uh, two renowned commanders, Georg von Fernsberg and a man named Mark Sitlick, which I think is just 
hilarious. I think it's very, it seems like such a regular name, Mark, for a uh, heroic German mercenary. I, I, I think that's great. I love, Mark is a great name. <laughs> Uh, with the reinforcements and his own army gaining more and more confidence, Lenoy is now ready to make things happen. He ordered his army to move out and head for Pavia. And by the end of January, the Imperial Army under Lenoy had already captured some small French outposts on its way to Milan. It was within 30 miles of the city when Lenoy pauses to divide his own army, just like Francis had earlier. Again, this kind of disguises his intentions, makes it harder to pin him down. It also makes it a little bit easier to feed the army. The vanguard of uh, the Imperial Army was in, under the control of the French turncoat Bourbon. Lenoy was in charge of the center column, and the talented Pescara is bringing up the rear guard. So by the end of the day on February 2nd, the Imperial Army's vanguard under Bourbon arrives outside the eastern gate of Visconti Park. As the Imperial forces build up its own camp and started to dig their cannon in around Pavia, the French respond in kind. So the two armies, for the first time, start interacting. They start firing cannon uh, salvos at each other to kind of let each other know, hey, we're here, uh, we're not going anywhere, this is kind of, uh, this thing's going to be done. At some point, we've got to uh, settle this whole thing. So, lobbing shot back and forth, they keep both sides busy, but time's really running out for Lenoy and the Imperials. His 24,000-man army has got to somehow break the French siege of Pavia because the 9,000 men inside Pavia are ready to, uh, they're ready to get out of there. Deleva is inside the city and he's running low on money. And the more and more he's running low on money, the more the mercenaries are grumbling about their pay issues. So soon they're thinking about walking or worse, joining the French for the promise of regular pay. Uh, and that would obviously be catastrophic for the Imperial Army They'd have to face a whole new set of circumstances if that happened. The situation for Francis at this point is challenging, but not impossible. He was confident that in a pitched battle he could win so long as he kept the two parts of the enemy army apart. So as long as the field army and the garrison army inside Pavia are kept apart, Francis has a good shot of maybe winning this thing. The problem that he's running into is that to pen the garrison in to besiege the city, Francis had to split his own army into four separate sections. Now, so now he's got four different parts of his army in different areas, and now there's a relief army in the field against him. Uh, the concern is that if the Imperials attacked one isolated portion at a time, would the other French forces be able to get there and support it before it was destroyed and overwhelmed? Uh, Lenoy only needed to make a hole at one spot to give the garrison the exit path that it required to get out of the city. So Francis is in a tough spot. It's not impossible to win, but it's a tough spot. Uh, while the two commanders tried to puzzle out what to do next, Bourbon kept the French army on its toes. He kept launching uh, night raids against the French positions all around the park, 
and eventually he goes and launches some probing speculative raids inside the city of Visconti, or inside the park of Visconti. The Imperial force uh, is killed on one particular occasion. Uh, Bourbon goes and raids inside the park. The Imperial force is killed. Hundreds of French troops die, though, and, and one artillery battery is completely destroyed by the Imperials. So Bourbon has some success in there. He realizes um, he hadn't won that particular battle by any means, but he might have found a way to win the grand battle. Uh, the French didn't have a monopoly on war councils, so Lenoy calls his own council on February 21st. He explains to his fellow commanders that the word from inside the city is pretty terrible. Uh, there's no money left, and if the garrison isn't rescued within three or four days, in Lenoy's words, he says, quote, all is lost, end quote. Because the French army is so dispersed, Lenoy had no way of really knowing that the at, that at that moment, the Imperial Army actually outnumbered the French Army uh, by a fair amount. It's just because it's so spread out, he, he really isn't able to get a bead on that. So had he actually launched a full attack at this point, there really would have been no way for Francis to cope with it uh, on that kind of a scale, and he would have lost. But, of course, the fog of war tends to assert itself at some point, and so Lenoy did not launch a massive assault because he couldn't tell how many men that the French had. Uh, instead, he planned a modified version of Bourbon's raids from the previous nights. Sending a force of engineers to the northern section of the wall around Visconti Park, the Imperial plan is to breach the wall, then send a contingent of arquebusers or arquebusers into Visconti Park. Once inside, they're to move quickly to Mirabello Castle, which is still believed to be Francis's headquarters, and even though he's moved it at this point, but the Imperials don't know that. So their plan is to go and take the castle. After that, they're to uh, get their, to fight their way to the city of Pavia and free the defenders or link up with the defenders. While the Arkbusters acted as the advance party, the rest of the Imperial Army would enter the park through the breach in the north. It was hoped that the garrison of Pavia would be able to sally forth from the city, join the attack, and would therefore be able to get out of Pavia and would be free from the, the siege. It was also hoped that the Arkbusters might take Mirabello Castle and also capture Francis in the fight, or at least force him to retreat from the park. Uh, that obviously wouldn't happen now because he has moved his, his headquarters, he's moved his camp uh, further north and west in Visconti Park. The Imperial Breach uh, was planned to be a quick thing, uh, but it doesn't go the way that Charles, uh, Lenoy was hoping. West of Porta Pesarina, the engineers start working on breaching the Visconti Park wall, but progress is really slow. The walls were thicker than anticipated, and even with 2,000 engineers with hammers and picks moving uh, as quick as they can and just hammering away at this wall, uh, progress is really slow. It's moving at a snail's pace. So Lenoy, he wanted to attack in the early morning dark, but... Uh, it's not going to happen. He, he actually dressed all of his uh, arquebusters in white tunics for that purpose so that they'd be easy to see in the dark, but 
Now, though, uh, this is going to be totally unnecessary because the breach isn't done until almost dawn. At 5 o'clock in the morning, the 3,000 arcbusters move into the park and headed for Mirabello Castle. Using the woods as cover, the strike force, made up of Spanish and Italian gunmen, had been trained and prepared by Piscara himself. So, moving in support of the arcbusters was a contingent of Spanish and Italian light cavalry, and the whole unit, they uh, moved their way towards Mirabello, and at 6 a.m., the Imperial Army itself is now entering through the breach and forming up in the northeast portion of Visconti Park. Then, the literal fog of war plays a role. The Ticino River creates a dense, soupy fog on the on winter mornings, and as it rolls over the park, the armies inside are totally consumed by this mist. The thickness of it really makes communication, coordination, way more difficult than normal for both armies. But on the offensive, you have a slight edge because if you just know where you're headed or if you just attack whatever armies in front of you, whatever enemies in front of you, you get a slight edge. Defense, however, is all about coordination. So uh, it becomes a little bit more difficult when you're trying to defend something and you don't know where the enemy is going to come out of. Uh, the Battle of Pavia truly begins in earnest because of these murky conditions. French pikemen and light cavalry rushing to the supposed breach bump into Spanish light cavalry. French also had uh, gone right by the fast-moving arcbusters headed for Mirabello Castle, didn't see them, didn't even notice them because of that fog. So they missed an opportunity to uh, defeat or at least engage a portion of this uh, imperial army that's going to play a key role in the way that the whole battle turns out. The Spanish light cavalry beat a hasty retreat from the French that they engage with, and the French force continues north only to stumble on another imperial unit. This time, it's, in, it's an imperial field battery. The gunners run for it, and the French capture more than 10 cannon. Uh, Bonivet, who is with them, he... Uh, decides that this is the whole uh, attack is really made up of just some light cavalry and some cannon, which is an absurd thing to deduce from that. But he decides that he's won the day and the park is safe. He goes back to Francis and assured him that the enemy had been sent packing. So Bonivet makes a very big mistake here, convincing Francis that there's not much to worry about. As he's saying that, or around that time, he's talking to Francis, he, they hear some distant cannon salvos, three of them actually. That's a sign from the Imperial Army outside the city to uh, let the the men inside the garrison, the, the men inside Pavia, to uh, encourage them to sally forth from the, the city and attack. Deleva and his lance connects swarmed the small force of French sentries left to guard the southern entrance at, uh, to Visconti Park. By overrunning this, this key position, Deleva and the Imperial Army now have a wedge between the leading French army and its smaller splinter sections. So now the Habsburg Imperial Army can really start isolating and crushing each little portion of the French army. Francis himself had about 7,000 men outside of Visconti Park, so those little portions are actually, if you add them together, they would have been a, a fairly large contingent inside the park. 
at 6.30, the Arkbusters strike, strike force uh, storms Mirabello Castle. The small French force guarding it was totally taken by surprise and stunned. They hadn't even lifted the drawbridge in time, uh, so the strike force just captures the castle. And since it had been the headquarters of the French army, there was a large number of camp followers. Uh, there's just the merchants and uh, servants of, of an attendant to an army are all hanging out around there. There's also a supply wagon train that's there. All of this is ravaged by these uh, arquebusters, these Spanish infantry. They kill or massacre all the civilians, and they, they're they about to start digging into all the um, all the supplies and, and really just about on the verge of being out of control. And then that trusty old General Piscara shows up and reasserts control over the situation. He brings the Arkbusters to heal and brings a little bit of organization back to the strike force. At 7 a.m., two columns of Lansknechts had made their way through the breach in the northern portion of the wall, uh, so the Imperial Army's really starting to form up. The first one of those columns was led by that guy, Mark Sitlick. Uh, he's com- he comes into contact with uh, 3,000 French pikemen, and he's able to uh, see them packing pretty quickly. And it was uh, the second column is a mix of Spanish infantry, Lansknechts, and Spanish cavalry. And they also come in, they, they hold fast, and really are able to reinforce force Sitlik's pikemen or the arkbusters at Marabello Castle, whichever is going to need that uh, reinforcement. Francis made sure to build his new camp in an area that was well prepared for defense. The surrounding trees had been cleared so his cavalry would be unrestricted in their movement. If the Imperials showed up, the French would have about 4,000 lance-connect and 2,000 men-at-arms to hold them as well as 3,500 heavy cavalry gendarmes to smash the Imperials. The heavy cavalry would act as the French sword, the infantry as the shield. And the Imperials did, in fact, show up. They were in the park, and they spread out and looked for the French army, and eventually found Francis in his new camp. Emerging from the woods across from the French was a line of Spanish infantry and light cavalry. The Imperial forces formed up and immediately came under artillery fire from the French battery in Francis's camp. But fog and an abundance of cover diluted the cannon fire's effect. And also the, uh, the cannon at this point, they're not super, super accurate. They can hit walls and cities really well, but they're not really going to f- be able to track uh, infantry and, and hit them from far away as they're moving and dispersing. Francis, deciding that since Bonivet had told him that the enemy in the park was no more than a raiding party and was pretty much already defeated... Francis decides to finish the enemy with a charge. Surrounded by his nobles and advisors, Francis formed his gendarmes into a diagonal line going northwest to uh, southwest, so from the northwest point to the southwest point. 
the Imperial infantry across from him had dispersed for cover, so he was facing only around 2,000 mixed Spanish cavalry. The Spanish line was outnumbered and severely outweighed by the French. Of course, Lenoy himself was on the scene, so they felt somewhat confident that they might stand a chance. The French heavy cavalry, the gendarmes, and I mean these guys are in plate mail, head to toe. Even the horses have a ton of uh, protection, a ton of steel armor on them. The 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 they're they're pretty much impervious to almost anything, except for uh, what we're gonna see. Uh, the uh, eventually we'll find out what gets t- through that armor. So the French gendarmes, the heavy cavalry, they're in four rows, uh, four rows deep. And they're carrying large, uh, large, heavy, thick lances that would be used to impale their target and then would be tossed away. Then the knight would draw a sword or a hammer or an axe, something that's going to slash or hack or smash anything nearby. These are the tanks of their day. Extremely expensive, but if used correctly, highly effective. But again, as we'll see, they're, they're not impervious and they are not unbeatable. Lenoy watches the French form up, and he says to the men nearby, he says, quote, There is no hope left but God. Follow me and do as I do. End quote. And then he charges. Uh, he's a smaller, he's outnumbered, but he, he charges the larger, heavier army. And it's a smart move, because by moving first, he's trying to keep the French from building up momentum and speed, both of which they need to really maximize their power. Seeing this, though, Francis doesn't want to be outdone, so he orders a charge of his own, and the two sides meet in the middle of this clearing in front of Francis's camp. It's a, uh, it's always something that I think about, is a true cavalry charge must have been uh, an incredible scene. It's a moment that plenty of movies have tried to do, but it's, it's just impossible to get it perfect or just right. The sound of all that metal smashing into metal, uh, metal smashing into horses, metal smashing into men, must have been just so loud and discombobulating. Uh, The dust and earth and mud that's flying through the air, not to mention the body parts and gore, uh, the chaos and gore would would have been just too much for anybody to process. Uh, A bystander would have no idea who was winning or what was going on. But the men in the fight definitely did and and would, and they could sense what was going on even if they couldn't hear orders. And eventually, certainly at Pavia, that just kind of uh, feeling goes, ripples through the Spanish line. And even though they fought really hard and fiercely, uh, the French are just too many and too powerful. The pressure proves too much, and Lenoy and his men flee the the field. They, They run away. Uh, the Spanish cavalry rides as hard and fast as it can for safety, fleeing to the southeast portion of Visconti Park. That's where the the garrison of Pavia has already breached out of the, or, you know, they've sallied out of the city. They've overwhelmed the French in front of them. Um, so Lenoy and his men are fleeing in that direction. The French and Francis follow up for a short while, about four or 500 yards, but the terrain isn't great and they've already won. There's no point in following up a a broken enemy. Also, they're not really built for long uh, races. They're built for just real short bursts of huge energy. 
Um, the French king decides to let his men recover, stop, enjoy their victory for a few moments, and then they would uh, turn around and deal with those pesky little infantry that they had seen originally coming out of the forest. By uh, It wasn't even 8 o'clock in the morning, and, and Francis must have felt pretty damn good about his victory on the field of Visconti Park. Of course, that is until he hears the crack and pop noises that are coming from his right. The Spanish arquebusters started pouring fire into his flank. His heavily armed gendarmes and armored gendarmes just started melting under the onslaught. Plate armor is great against arrows and swords and even works against glancing blows from axes and hammers and, and spears. No plate armor could stop the lead death. The arc bus shots just punch right through the steel and proceeded unfazed into the flesh, bones, and vitals of the unlucky victims. No man was safe or spared either. Most of the gendarmes of France were nobility or of high birth. Almost all were wealthy. Their status alone should have kept them safe in their own mind. Status plus armor and these guys believed themselves almost invincible and they were not. As the hailstorm of fire shredded his flank, Francis found himself unable to move. The ground, not ideal to begin with, it was just too wet naturally, was now slop. The cavalry had churned the field into a muddy quagmire, and the charge had also put his cavalry smack in between the pesky imperial infantry and his own cannon, which meant that there was no artillery support coming from, uh, from Francis's camp. So a retreat is out. The big guns are out. Well, what about an attack, Francis thinks? That's out because the clever Imperial General Pescara that we talked about earlier had been a witness to this cavalry fight, and he uses the distraction wisely. First, he sends a runner as quick as he can to go get Bourbon and Frunsberg, two of the uh, uh, co columns of, of infantry that had come in earlier. Uh, and so he sends a runner to go get those guys to show up because Piscara could tell. There's something about these old war dogs where they just, they, they get a feeling, something, a pain in their knee or, you know, a twitch in their eye or whatever, and they can tell the wind is, is going to change or the direction of it's going to change. And all of a sudden he gets a sense that this is where the real battle is going to be won. This, this weird little fight between the, the gendarmes and the arcbusters, this is going to be it. So he goes to get, uh, he sends a runner to go get more men, and then he's ordered these Spanish arquebusters, while the cavalry battle's going on, he orders these Spanish arquebusters to take up firing positions in the canals and ditches and little irrigation, drainage, swamp area stuff, wherever they can, because he knows that the cavalry can't follow them there. So firing from these low waterlogged little spots, cavalry's unable to reach them. And so they're able to just sit there and fire away. And the arcbusters play havoc on Francis's stalled-out cavalry, so he's desperately uh, trying to figure out a way out of this. They're just pounding away on the, the gendarmes, popping off everywhere, shooting them down like nobody's business. Francis is desperate. He sends uh, a runner of his own to back to the camp to try and get reinforcements, trying to pull as many pikemen up as he can. 
Um, by 8 a.m., more Imperial infantry have appeared. And now this time, instead of just on the right, they're on the right and the left flank of Francis's position. He's truly, truly screwed at this point. And he must have started to know. Like, he must have realized at this point it's, it's over. And they're so, the gendarmes are so tightly packed and they're so big that it's like shooting fish in a barrel. The French nobility is, is, it's more like shooting whales in a teacup because of the, the size and tightly packed nature of their position. Shot after shot found its mark. The tightly packed men and horses would have been just hard to miss. Neither horse nor man was spared, and all around him Francis is witnessing just pure carnage. His friend, Bonivet, the man most responsible for the current situation, was turned into an imperial pincushion by pikes. Stabbed or shot gendarmes died astride their horses, or they were dragged and pulled to the ground where they were bashed and smashed to death. Unable to stand or fight, a thin blade would be slid into their eye holes or slipped into the armor gaps at the neck or groin or armpit. Everywhere, men were dying quick and dirty or slow and painfully. The French camp sent all of its infantry it could. So as soon as they got the runner from the king, they, th they threw everybody into the fight. But even the 6,000 men that showed up could do little to stem the bleeding. The French Lansknecht mercenary turncoats are, are fighting their own countrymen. So, you know, these guys that uh, Francis bribed and paid to come fight for him, um, which, by the way, they have a really badass name, although it doesn't really help them much, but they're known as the Black Band. Uh, they show up on Francis's right flank around 815, and they fight really hard, and they die really hard. The Imperial Lansknechts and the men-at-arms kill them almost to a man. The collapse of the right wing and the reinforcements that were slaughtered basically signal that the end of the contest is now. The French infantry fled and were closely pursued by the Imperial Lansknechts, who in the pursuit took the French camp and its cannon, and so there was much dying left to be done, but the battle was essentially over. While the French fate was sealed on the right, the left and center were still fighting. The cavalry, now totally alone and withering, was forced to stand and fight to the very end. Francis himself was eventually surrounded and unhorsed. His horse was riddled with arquebus shots and collapsed under him. As the king rose to his feet, still fighting, he saw a ring of enemies all around him. And these were Spanish pikemen and arquebusers and men-at-arms, and they were intent on killing a king. Repeatedly rushed from behind, Francis shows that he's got, got some serious sword skills. He's, he's quite the swordsman, and he fights off these attacks, even though he gets injured in the face and in his sword arm. Uh, but the heavy-duty plate armor protects him. Uh, so Francis is, is ready to take on more charges, but this time the Imperial Infantry gets a little clever, they get a little smart. Instead of taking on the king's armor and trying to beat it or punch through it, they go head-to-head, -head, and they use its own weight against it. By knocking the king over, they let the suction of the mud and the heaviness of the armor hold the king down, and then they plan on having someone sneak up and slip a dagger into his throat. 
before that ugly little scene could play out, though. Uh, Lenoy, the overall Imperial commander who was just running away with the Spanish cavalry like 15 minutes ago, he had turned around, come back to the battle because he also got that sense that this is the big, this is the the big deal. This is the the last push. Uh, he comes back to the battle, and at the last minute, he sees that his men are about to execute the French king, which would eliminate a potential major bargaining chip, not to mention maybe foster some weird, bizarre, kind of unhealthy sense of class equality among his men that Lenoy and Charles, the king of Spain and uh, Holy Roman Emperor, probably did not want to in. Spire, so uh, Lenoy rides his horse hard into the action. Using his own armor and horse as a shield for the king that's on the ground, Lenoy inserts himself between the grounded king and bloodthirsty Spaniards. Grabbing a group of arquebusers to act as guards against his own men, Lenoy went to the French king. He kneeled down before him, took the French king's hand, and kisses it. Lenoy, noticing bloody uh, blood coming from the Frenchman's face, says, quote, Sire, are you severely wounded? End quote. And Francis, according to William Welsh, is supposed to have said, quote, Hardly at all. End quote. Or Lenoy kneeled and gave him his own sword. Or they exchanged swords, or Pedro Valdiva, the future conqueror of Chile, captured him. Or it was some random German soldiers who just noticed him on the ground. Or, again, I'm not going to belabor the point, but you get it. Um, there were a lot of stories about how the French king was captured and who did it. But this is one of those events that's just been written over and over, and really nobody knows what happened. So I'm going to go with the version I like the most, which is Lenoy kneeling. And uh, I think that's a better one, or that's the best one. So I'm going with it, but uh, we really have no idea. What we do know, though, is that the French army ceased to exist as a fighting force before 9 a.m. After only three hours of battle, Francis and his men were utterly defeated. The killing didn't end with the king's capture, though, as the enemy army routed the imperial forces followed, and at one point, 6,000 Swiss mercenaries were pursued to the river Ticino, 6,000 armed men tried to cross the river via one single pontoon bridge. So, you can imagine the carnage and chaos as the Imperial Army ripped the rearmost men to shreds. The Swiss turned on each other on the bridge and just started killing each other or throwing each other over the side in their panic. And then any, or the vast majority that tried to swim across the river ended up drowning and or were shot for their troubles. As the fog lifted on the battlefield of Pavia, Lenoy surveyed the field and he could see his army was victorious. Pavia had been saved and the French in Lombardy destroyed. 10,000 or more Frenchmen died outside Pavia. The Imperial forces lost maybe 2,000 men total. A decisive, a truly decisive defeat, and maybe the last one between 1525 and 1625. In that hundred-year span, there doesn't seem to be any truly decisive battles. Um, I'm sure someone will debate me on that, but 
It's uh, it doesn't seem like there is much that happens uh, in terms of decisive military action in between. The Battle of Pavia was also a truly watershed, like it was a watershed moment in the Italian wars, probably the highlight moment of the Italian wars. France was, for the moment anyway, put in her place. Most of the French nobility had actually died on the field, and her king was now a captive of the Holy Roman Emperor. After the battle, Francis was sent to Barcelona and the court of his young rival, Charles. The two men spent some time brokering a peace that ended the war at that point, but as uh, basically France was forced to uh, renounce any claim on Milan and was supposed to turn the province of Burgundy over to Charles for his control, and the treaty was called the Treaty of Madrid in 1526. It was signed. A few months later, Francis returns to Paris and his kingdom, and almost immediately, with the aid of the Pope, again meddling, Francis reneges on the deal and refused to give Burgundy over to Charles. So the war gets picked up again. It continues for a few more years, but never really reaches the same fever pitch as before Pavia. And finally, the Valois king of France and the Habsburg emperor of the Holy Roman Empire in Spain signed a lasting treaty at the city of Cambrai in 1529. Charles gave up his claim on Burgundy, and Francis gave up any claim that he might have had on the Italian duchies. As a final note, the man that started the whole affair, the former French noble Bourbon, never went back to France. He couldn't. But his new master, Charles, unlike his old one, Francis, showed his appreciation for Bourbon's hard work and fighting ability. The Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor gave Bourbon a wealthy, sophisticated commercial city to run. In a final F.U. middle finger to Francis I, King of France, Charles Habsburg gave the city of Milan to the French trader Bourbon. All right, guys. That is the story of the Battle of Pavia, a slog of a battle, and a lot of fun to get together and write and put out there. Sorry for the Saturday delivery. I know I was supposed to get it out yesterday, but writing this one took me a little bit longer than I anticipated. Uh, a lot of late nights this week, so it was a bit of a uh, bit of a marathon to get this thing done, but I hope you enjoyed it. I know I learned a lot uh, researching this. The Lansknecks are so cool. Uh, they alone deserve their own episode. And again, one day we'll get to the Habsburg Empire because that deserves its own episode just to explain. Uh, the sources on this one are in the notes, but I wanted to just give a special shout out to Jeremy Black's uh, the, the book uh, European Warfare, 1453 to 1815, edited by Jeremy Black. It's an awesome book. It really helped me understand Spanish uh, tactics and just the, the military revolution that occurs at this point in history. Uh, lots of solid info and wonderful little factoids. Definitely pick it up if you get the chance. I got my copy on Amazon for like 
eight or nine bucks, I, I think. Um, but it's well worth the investment, no matter what it costs. Uh, the live stream coming up, if everything works out, is going to feature an Australian medieval melee fighter, I hope. So check that out Wednesday at 8. Uh, check out the Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter if you want to get involved. We have some cool stuff coming up on the live stream where we're going to have some listeners present their own like short, more interactive version of the podcast on Wednesday. Um, so have some stuff going on there, which you might find interesting. So check that out. Uh, Patreon producers get access to extra shows, extra audio, uh, some other cool stuff, some show gear. They also get uh, most of the episodes and, and various things before everybody else. So if you want to get involved with any of those things, uh, just check out that particular, go to that particular site, search Cauldron, and we should pop up. You might have to scroll like one or two, but we should be pretty high up there. As always, please, please, please rate, review, subscribe. I don't know what it does, but it does something, and uh, it helps the show get up a little bit more noticed. The more people we have involved, the better. Uh, and I always love to see what you guys have to say about the show. So if you write a review, I will read it in the next uh, the next short episode. So I'd be pretty excited if we could get 100 ratings by St. Patrick's Day. And please, if you don't like what you heard, don't leave a bad review or a bad rating. Just don't listen. Um, all right. Thank you guys very much. Again, that was a lot of fun. Uh, but enough of that. The next time we get together, we are getting stuck in with a volcanic crater. Two of my all-time favorite Americans, Mr. Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, and none other than T.R. Teddy Roosevelt, and one of the darkest days in U.S. history that nobody seems to know about. Next time on Cauldron, we're listening to, or we're talking about the Battle of Bud. Dajau, more accurately known as the Moro Crater Massacre.